Well, if you weren't with us last week, you missed out on an incredible week where we got some good news. We talked about the fact that over the last few months, we've been looking in in the process of acquiring 40 acres of property, a little bit north of here, that uh, was donated to us. The cost of that land was donated to us by a businessman in our church. And uh, the value of that property is uh, $1.1 million dollars. And uh, not a single penny of that is, is required from the church because this businessman, just being led of the Lord, he felt like God was saying to him to do this. He was donating that to the church. And so now we begin the process of really kind of figuring out if that's the place that we're going to settle, if we're going to build a church on that property, or if we're going to sell that property at some point and take all that money that comes from that, that sale and utilize it to, to fund our future home. And so we're in the process of doing that right now, and we just covet your prayers and uh, wisdom there as we try to make those decisions. But man, last week we just celebrated that. Well, what that did is it kind of put a little bit of a pause in the series that we've been a part of here in the month of October. The month of October, we had kind of said, hey, we're going to spend four weeks looking at the book of Philippians. The book of Philippians is a letter written in the New Testament by a guy named Paul. Paul is pretty famous in the New Testament. Uh, he wrote uh, 13 or 14 letters in the New Testament and uh, just wrote these pretty much to groups of people or churches that he had helped to start um, or had been a part of at some point in his journey. And so really, if you are reading through the New Testament, if you've never done this, you've got the first four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, then you have the book of Acts, and then you have pretty much the rest of the New Testament. And, And if you've never done this, I encourage you to read the book of Acts, which is Um, kind of the hinge of the New Testament. That's the way I describe it, because what it does is it connects the stories of Jesus and those early apostles and early church leaders, and it kind of helps you see who the cast of characters is going to be. Obviously, in Acts, there are new characters that are introduced, but there's some people that start that, that story in the book of Acts, and then people that they win to the Lord come into the story. Things that God does supernaturally, they come into the story. And then Pretty much from about Acts chapter 9 on through the end of the book of Acts, you read about the things that are going to be um, kind of discussed or alluded to in the rest of the New Testament. You see the Apostle Paul and you see Peter and you see those early apostles planting churches and interacting with government officials and government leaders. And you're going to see some of those things play out through the remaining, uh, remaining part of the New Testament. And so what we have in Acts 16 is we have a story where Paul enters the city of Philippi and he interacts with a few people there, some women and some other folks, and they come to the Lord, they enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ, and they really establish a church. And we don't get all of the details there, we just get a little snippet of the information. Then we get the letter of Philippians. So the book of Philippians is the story, or really the writing, to that group of people that established the church in Acts chapter 16. And so Paul, who has left them, later is imprisoned. Many scholars believe he's imprisoned in Rome. He was imprisoned several times um, later in life. And so one of those times, he writes this letter while in prison back to that group of people in the city of Philippi. And uh, that letter is called Philippians. And so we were going to spend October really looking at that. The book of Philippians is an interesting book uh, because, as as we just talked about, Paul is in prison while he's writing it. And so I don't know if you've ever spent any time in jail. A couple weeks ago, I talked about my experience in jail, and that's kind of been a running joke now for several weeks, and I'm regretting ever telling that story. If you missed that, you can catch it on the podcast. But uh, I, I spent some time in jail, 
just a couple hours. It was a paperwork discrepancy. Don't think I'm a dirty, rotten sinner. But in that time, I met some of the most interesting people in all the world. And if I were writing a letter to my family or to my friends about the time that I had spent in jail, I think I would spend a lot of my time talking to them about these amazing people that I was interacting with. That's not what Paul really chooses to do. Paul chooses to write to these people in the city of Philippi and to encourage them. From his place of imprisonment, he chooses to try to encourage them. He talks a lot about joy. He talks a lot about rejoicing. Uh, 14 or 15 times he talks about this idea of joy or rejoicing or being joyful or being glad in just this short four-chapter book. And so the first couple of weeks we talked about that joy that we have. Pastor Mark, who's our senior pastor for our locations of Mount Perrin North, he came a few weeks ago and talked to us a little bit about the attitude of Christ and how we can have that attitude of Christ. And last week we were going to look at chapter 3 and really talk about kind of the knowledge of Christ that we have and the hope that we can have because of that knowledge looking ahead. But today we're going to talk out of chapter 4. So if you've got a Bible, you can flip with me to Philippians. Flip with me to Philippians. Say that five times real fast. Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 6. This is what it says. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is, uh, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Now, there's a number of important words here, and I'm going to define some of those or help us just make sure we're all on the same page here. This is not kind of my normal mode here. We're not just going to go through and define every word that we read in the original language or even in English, but there are a few words that I think are important for us to all be on the same page about. In verse 6, he said, don't be anxious. Now, many of us understand what anxiousness is, uh, anxiety-ridden kind of thing. It's to worry, to be nervous, or to have unease. So Paul is making a pretty bold, broad statement. Anybody in the room ever been anxious about anything? Right? Anybody's hand is not raised as a liar. Okay? I mean, anxious, you know, Corey and I, my wife, she, she gets anxious. She gets worried or thinks, I don't tend to get that way a lot, but I, I get that way on certain things. There may be something that's happening and I, I get a little worried or I get a little uneasy and I may describe it as something different. You may not use the word anxiety. You may not use the word anxious. But whatever word you use, it's this idea that I'm uneasy about something. I'm nervous about something. I am worrying about something. Paul says, don't do that. Don't worry. Don't be anxious. Don't have anxiety about anything. And then what he says, he starts to talk about prayer. What we read there is he says, listen, don't do that. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, or in your translation, it may say petition instead of supplication. We'll talk about that in a second. Uh, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So what is he talking about here? This idea of prayer is not just the communication with God. It's just your approach to God, just your general approach to God. It is not stopping what you do to then pray a specific prayer to God and say, you know, now I lay me down to sleep. You know, it's not that. It's not saying, you know, Lord, bless this food. That's not what we're talking about here. What Paul is saying is, listen, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer. It's but in everything, in the way that you approach God. So that word prayer may be confusing because of how you view prayer right now. But what Paul's saying, listen, in, in everything, don't be anxious, but in everything, in the way that you approach God, 
and petitions and thanksgiving and requests. So this supplication or petition is requesting an answer for a specific need. This is really that part of prayer that we like. We say, God, I've got a need and I'm asking you to meet it. I need $100 by Friday or my power's getting cut off. Students in the room, you know, I got a test and I forgot and I need to pass this test or I'm going to get in trouble. We have a specific need and we are petitioning God for an answer to that specific need. That's what supplication or petition would be. It says, and supplication or petition with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is an attitude that should always accompany prayer. It's giving thanks. It defines itself. So notice here what Paul's saying. He says, when you make a petition, when you ask God for a specific need, he says, do that with thanksgiving. I've used this reference a lot, and so I don't mean to kind of wear it out. If I didn't have kids, I wouldn't have anything to preach about. But my wife and I have four kids. Cooper will be 10 in just a few weeks, and Branson's seven, and Tucker's five, and Kinley is three. And if they come to ask me something, they may or may not get it. But here's what my daughter has learned. She's three. She's already the most manipulative little girl in the world. She will say to me, because somewhere along the way, I was able to open something, do something that was stronger than she was able to produce. And I don't know where she got this vocabulary. I don't know if her mother taught her this. Only good things her mother teaches her, obviously. But I don't know if her mother taught her this. I have no idea if the devil taught her this. But this is what she'll do. She'll say, Dad, she's three, right? Dad, do you remember that you're the most strongest man in the world? And I'll say, yes. And she'll say, can you, and then she'll ask me to do something. Now, here's what she's doing. She is setting me up before she asks me to do something, right? Like some of you ladies in the room don't have to be three to do that. You just do that, right? Guys, we're not smart enough to do that. Like we don't even know that that helps us really. But she wants me to know that she thinks I'm strong enough to do whatever she's about to ask me. Usually it's something very minor. Can I open the sliding door to our backyard that she still can't push hard enough to open? Dad, do you know that you're the most strongest man in the world? Can you open the door? Dad, do you know that you're the most strongest man in the world? Can you put the straw in my juice box? Now, what is she doing? She is petitioning me for something. And while she may not be accompanying it with thanksgiving, she is accompanying it with something that makes me feel good about myself. I am scared to death when she's 13 and not 3. Okay. Now, without being manipulative, what God is saying here through the Apostle Paul to these people in Philippians, he says, listen, anytime you petition God, you should thank God. This is not manipulative. It serves two purposes. One, it lets God know that you know who he is. It reminds God that you know he is capable of doing what you're petitioning him for. The Old Testament is filled with prayers that say to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this is the idea that they are reminding God that he came through for their forefathers before they ask him for something that they need. There's also all these places throughout the Old Testament where we see them build altars. They just stack up a bunch of stones. It doesn't seem like this really ornate design. They just put a bunch of stones there and they go, we're going to call that whatever because this is the place that God provided. Or we're going to call that so-and-so because this is the place that God showed up on our behalf. It is a reminder place that God was able to do what they needed him to do in that moment. So it's a a place of thanksgiving. 
And so it serves that purpose. The second thing it does is it helps you and I to be reminded that God is able, right? Before or in the context of me asking God for something, it's important to remember that God can do that. So if I have a petition of God, I can couch that in a way that says, God, I want to thank you for being my provider. I want to thank you that when the money was running out, money just showed up. I want to thank you, God, for the health of my family, that we've been in good health. And now, God, I have a petition. I have a need that I want to present to you. I need you to heal this person that's sick. And I know you can do that because, God, I want to thank you that you have healed before. I want to thank you that you have provided before as I ask you to meet a need that I have. And so Paul is saying here, listen, when you have a petition, do that with thanksgiving. It's not a formula. I don't think that if you just forget to give thanks or you don't give thanks, that God's going to be like, well, you didn't say the magic word. I don't think that's how God works. I will open the back door for my daughter anyway. She doesn't have to say, you remember you're the most strongest man in the world? She doesn't have to say that. If she says, Dad, will you open the door for me? I will. I think God's the same way. He's a loving heavenly father who will give good gifts to his children according to Scripture. But Paul was saying, listen, you need to add to your petitions this attitude of thanksgiving. And then the last thing is, and this may sound a little bit similar, is then to let your requests be made known to God. This idea of request is to ask for a definite, specific thing. This may be a need that needs to be met, something that's already happening, or it may be something that is coming in the future. But here's, here's what Paul is saying, which is echoed throughout Scripture, In the gospel account, we see that we have not because we ask not. We see that God is a loving heavenly father who gives good gifts to his children. And Paul's saying, listen, let the requests that you have be made known to God. Again, let me just put it in the context of relationship. I can't know what my wife's thinking. She wants me to. I want to. But a lot of times, if she doesn't say what she's thinking, I have no idea. And so I feel like it's entirely fair, and I'm going to need an amen from a bunch of men here because I'm walking out on a pretty skinny ledge here. Thank you so much. If she doesn't share with me what she needs from me, I can't be held responsible for not meeting that need, right? That's your spot, guys. That was your spot. Thank you so much. I don't feel like you're actually with me, guys. But here's what I'm saying. God knows what we have need of before we ask it. That's what scripture tells us. But what my kids have figured out, and I've talked about prayer over the last few months several times, so some of this may be a repeat if you are a very faithful attender here. But what my kids have figured out is if they need something, they need to ask me for it. If they need something that I can provide, they can't just think it. They need to ask me for it. And if it's within my ability to provide it, and I believe it to be a good thing for them, then I will try to provide that for them. So Paul's saying, listen, don't be anxious. Don't be worried. So take all these things that you're worried about, and let's now take those things, and let's figure out how to approach God. Instead of being worried, let's bring those things in a general approach, a general attitude towards God. Let's let's just approach God with those things, and let's petition him, make specific requests of him, with an attitude of thanksgiving, that I don't have to be worried because God is able, 
And I want him to specifically know the things that I am asking him to do. So everybody with me? That's a lot of defining of some things. And then Paul goes on in verse 8 to give us some other things to focus on instead of the things that we're worried about. He says this, he says, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, then think on these things. This idea of true, obviously the opposite of that would be something untrue, dishonest, something that we can't rely on. But if it's true, we can rely on it. If it's honorable, it's respectful. It's something that's worthy of your time. If it's just or right, it conforms to God's standards. If it's pure, then it's wholesome, right? It, it, it's pure. It's, it's the same on the inside as the outside. It's not going to corrupt us. If it's lovely, then it promotes peace and not conflict. If it's commendable or admirable, then it's positive and constructive and not negative or uh, destructive in our lives. Paul says, listen, these things are excellent. They're praiseworthy. They are worth your time. They are good things, and they are things to worship God for. Now, try to take all of the things that we just talked about, both the first, few, the first two verses and the last verse. Paul says, he starts this by saying, don't worry about anything. Don't be anxious about anything. Don't have uneasy feelings about anything. And I know if you're sitting in the room and you're worried right now about something, you say, well, he doesn't know my situation. You're right, he doesn't. And yet he doesn't seem to allow for that. Does that mean that we shouldn't think about things and seek wise counsel and want to make the right decisions? Does it mean that we shouldn't kind of seek the, the wisest thing that we should do? Does it mean that there's going to be things that are over our head and kind of we, we can't really do on our own and we need God's help? And It's going to mean all that's true. But I think what Paul is trying to say here, if I could just bring it all back down into one main idea, I think what Paul is trying to say here what are you focused on? What are you really looking at? Are you looking at the situation more intently than you're looking at a God who can meet the needs of that situation? Are you more focused on the circumstances of your lives or are you more focused on the God who is intricately involved in the circumstances of your lives? And so as I read this, I, I thought of, about two one words, just two words here each of them kind of connecting to a portion of that passage that we just read. I think the first thing that Paul is saying here is that you need to filter. You need a filter. You have a water filter in your house maybe? You, you got something that you take in something that may have some contamination or it may have something that might not be the most healthy for you. And what it does is it takes out those little bits of impurity so that what you're getting supposedly, hopefully, if you spend enough money on your water filter... Hopefully, it works to give you a healthier finished product, that the water that you're drinking is healthier than that that's above the filter, that's coming into that line or into that you've poured in. And so what it's saying is here, there's something that allows me to filter out the things that are not good for me. Some of us, that's the answer to our worry. We just need to have a better filter because we are so like, just easily swayed by anything that we hear. I mean, we are so, like, we just, we hear one thing. We, oh, have you heard? Have you guys heard? Ebola is running rampant in our country. Now, I'm not saying 
That we shouldn't be concerned and shouldn't think about it. And we shouldn't, you know, don't go like just allowing people that have just come in from West Africa to like help you wash your hands and like change your contacts. Like, I understand. Be wise, right? But here's what, here's what I heard. I don't know if this is true. I heard that there are more people that have married Kim Kardashian in the United States than have died from Ebola. But some of us, if we're not careful, we go, oh my, I may have Ebola. I'm coughing it. I'm not making fun of you. I mean, a little bit I am, but I'm not trying to make fun of you. But I'm saying I might need to filter the information that I'm taking in. Some of us are so easily swayed by the information that we hear. Here's, here's the first thing I would tell you to do. Turn off the news. Turn off the news. Have you watched the news lately? It is horrible. The world is literally going to hell. Like everything's falling apart, everybody's sick, crazy people do crazy things. And if I'm sitting in the room watching the news, you know what my nine-year-old does? Dad, can that happen to us? Dad, I mean, are they going to come and do that to us? I, I promise you, I don't think I'm exaggerating at all. Almost every time we ever watch the news, my kids have a nightmare. And I think some of us are the same way. It may not materialize as a nightmare, it may not come in for you exactly the same way, but I would just turn off the news. Limit the voices that have access to speak into your life. Because I'm afraid that we listen, we hear something that's happening, and all of that's true. I'm not saying stick your head in the sand and act like nothing's happening and everything's you know, just rosy and peachy. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying some of us, if we have worry and anxiety and nervousness and unease about a lot of things... It may be that we just have to limit the things that we allow to come into our minds so that it's one less thing to worry about. Maybe this is the worst example in the world, okay? And if it is, just write it off as the worst example in the world. I, I went up last night and I spoke to about 50 couples from our, mostly our Marietta campus at the uh, marriage retreat up at the Windshape Retreat Center in Rome, Georgia. Beautiful place. There's just like deer everywhere. And that's awesome to me. Gorgeous. I went up, spoke at their marriage retreat, and I was speaking to married couples. And I was talking to them about the same idea, that they should limit the people that they allow to speak into their marriage, especially when they're going through a rocky season. If they're going through a rocky season in their marriage, they need to be careful who they allow to speak into their marriage, who they allow to talk about and give advice about their marriage. And I, I said this, Kevin James is one of my favorite comedians. And here's what Kevin James says. Whenever he's trying to lose weight, he says, I do not take weight loss advice from people bigger than me. If I'm trying to lose weight, you know, his, his weight loss goal, which I, I tend to echo, I think this is a great weight loss goal, is he just wants his belly not to jiggle when he brushes his teeth. <laughs> After that, it's pretty much all maintenance, right? But he says what happens is people that are bigger than him, they'll look at him, and he's a pretty big guy. They'll say to him, you, you know why you've gained weight. You're not chewing sugarless gum. Or stupid stuff like that. And he'll be like, no, I'm supersizing all of my combos. That's why I'm getting fat. It has nothing to do with shit. Because those people, in his mind, they have little credibility to speak to his condition because they don't appear to be headed in the same direction he's headed. Right? If he's trying to lose weight, he's talking to people that are maybe smaller than him or they have a track record of losing weight. They know how to do that. In the context of marriage, what I told those couples last night is like, if you're in a rocky relationship... Don't talk to people or allow people to talk to you 
Like you're trying to, you're trying to make it work. Like you think you're committed to seeing this thing through and, and, and honoring the vows that you actually made on that wedding day. Don't allow people who have been in one bad relationship after another bad relationship after another bad relationship who do not value marriage and relationships to give you advice on what you should do. When I was in school, my dad used to say this. If you're going to cheat, don't sit next to dumb people. Right? You understand? Everybody's with me? I don't feel like this side of the room is with me at all. (laughs) You understand what I'm saying, though? You have to be smart about the people that you allow to influence you. We talked last week about the children of Israel. We talked about the land that God had promised to them because we were talking about the land that God had given to us. And they were headed towards the promised land. They were headed towards the land that God had promised to their forefather, Abram, in Genesis chapter 12. And before they got there, which we see kind of in Joshua, the book of Joshua, before they got there, in the book of Numbers, in Numbers chapter 13, God tells Moses that they need to send some spies into the land. And so Moses helps get together one spy from each of the 12 tribes, and they're going to go into the land, and they're going to spy it out. And Moses says, go and figure out if it's good and what the cities look like, and, and I want you just to kind of... See what it's like and bring us a report back. And this is the report from 10 of the spies in Numbers 13, beginning in verse 27. And they told him, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Because they brought back this huge vine that had grapes on it that were like the size of a man. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. And the Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. And the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites, oh my, dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and all along the Jordan. Verse 31 says this. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. They are stronger than we are. There we go. Verse 32. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land, that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. Now, if that report gets to the people, how do you think the people respond? I envision those ten spies being the newsman, the newswoman. They're on there, and they're talking about some current event, like, oh, and, you know, that dog had 12 puppies. In other news, everyone was shot to death. Like, they're able just to turn on a dime. How do you think that the people responded? Numbers 14, verse 1 through 4. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled, grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is this God bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. You don't need yes men in your life, but I'm not really convinced that you need these kind of people in your life. People that would walk into a land that had been promised to them by God. Like God had said, it is already yours, you can have it. Go and inhabit the land. That kind of land is yours. They walk in and they choose to look and see things and they go, nope. Nope, it's bad. We can't can't have it. We can't take the land. We just need to turn around and go back to where we came from because we can't actually go into the future that God has for us. We can't inhabit the promises of God. They're just worriers. And worriers breed more worrying 
among the people that they worry to. I'm worried about this. I'm nervous about this. I'm anxious about this. I'm uneasy about this. And you should be too. And how dare you be positive about this and think that we can do this. I don't care what God said to us. I've seen them. They're big. They're giants. We can't go and get the land. We can't have it. It's not ours. I don't care what God promised to Abram. I've been there. I've seen it with my own eyes, and they're huge. We can't go do it. Let's go back to Egypt. God would not bring us here to allow us to die. You don't need people like that. Again, I'm not saying don't stick your head in the sand. I'm not saying that there is not wisdom in the counsel of many according to Scripture because there is. But you need people who will help you to count the cost and then allow you to chase the promises of God. And that is usually not found by turning around and going back where you came from. You know what was in Egypt? I mean, these naysayers, negative thinkers, you know what was in Egypt? They were saying, let's go back and be slaves again. Let's give up our freedom. And let's go back and be slaves again. Let's not serve God, a master who is a loving heavenly father. Let's serve a master who gave us less supplies and ordered us to make more bricks. Let's go back to that because at least we knew then that we were taken care of. We never had to work for our own food. We never had to do any of our own things. We could just be safe. You don't need people like that in your life. You need to filter what gets in. Filter what you're taking in. And I think if you do, you'll begin to see a change of what's coming out of you. The second thing that I think you need to do is you need to focus. Not only do you need to filter, you need to focus. You need to choose what you're going to focus on because you can choose a lot of things to focus your attention on. I think the more you start filtering, the more you start limiting the things that you take into your life, the more that you focus on the right things. But you need to focus. You know, those 10 spies that we talked about, those weren't the only people talking when they came back out of the land. There were two spies who came back with a different report, and this is what it says in Numbers 13, verse 30. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, the land, for we are well able to overcome it. Verse 6 of Numbers 14. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, The land which we passed through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. They're saying, yeah, listen, we saw the same big guys that the other ten saw. But we're choosing not to focus on those guys because we're choosing to focus that God said the land is ours. We're choosing to focus on the good things. What did Paul say? Don't be anxious. Think about the things that are good and just and lovely, honorable. Think about those things. Yeah, I can absolutely choose to focus on all of the things that I could worry about. But I choose not to. I just choose not to focus my time and focus my attention on things that I can't really control. I mean, there's a lot of things I could worry about, but I have no control over them. And so I'm just going to choose not to worry about those things. And I'm going to turn my attention and focus on a God 
who has proven that he's good. I'm going to think on things that are lovely and pure. These two spies, they came back and they said, listen, we saw the same big guys that the other ten saw. But you know what we saw? Milk and honey. We've been out in the desert eating quail and manna. Milk and honey looks amazing. So you know what we saw? We saw these ginormous grapes. You know what we saw? We saw the land that God had said was ours. Way back there to Father Abraham. That was renewed again to Jacob and renewed again to Isaac. That he said to Moses when they were pulling us out of Egypt, come and set my people free and let's go and inhabit the land which I have given, past tense, to my people. Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans that are good and not for evil. Plans to give you a future and a hope. That's what I'm choosing to dwell on today. This is not some kind of prosperity gospel. This is not some kind of like, again, I've used the same metaphor, but like sticking my head in the sand, acting like there's nothing going wrong in the world, acting like, but here's what I know. I have a hope. And that hope is found in Jesus Christ and the promises of God. And so I'm just going to choose to not be anxious and not to worry. And if there's something that you're worried about, you know what I would say to you? Turn your attention and your focus away from that and towards God. This God that you can declare with thanksgiving how good he is and what he has done for you time and time and time again. I've used this illustration a bunch, and so please forgive me if you've seen it or heard it and you think this is the cheesiest thing in the world. I'm a very simple-minded person. And so what I do is, thank you, agreement that I'm a simple-minded person. What I do is I tend to just find things that help me to understand or to comprehend a principle or an idea that I think is very complex. I cannot make God any bigger than he is. Right? When I was growing up, a word that we used in worship a lot was magnify the Lord. Well, in science class, they taught me that magnifying was to make something larger. But I can't make God bigger than he is. But really what I'm doing is I'm not actually making him bigger. I'm just changing my perspective. I'm using, you know, a magnifying glass to make the ant look bigger. I'm, I'm changing the view that I have. I'm turning my attention away from my problems and turning my attention towards God. He's bigger when I'm focused on him than he is in the periphery when I'm focused on something else. And so this is a bottle of water. I think we paid, I don't know, a dollar for like a thousand of these. Thank you. So just trying to keep it fun if you were here last week. Um, here's a bottle of water, but I'm zoomed in on my camera here on my phone. And I can't really see what that is. I mean, I've got like a blue and a white. I mean, I'm, some of you are getting dizzy here. Like I have no idea what that is, right? But when I zoom out... It's obvious what that is. It's a Deer Park bottle of water. I think in my life, I've got to do the same thing. Because when I am so intently zoomed in and focused on my problems, I miss a ton of other details. 
I lose sight of a ton of other things that actually speak into the situation that I'm walking through. I mean, yeah, I can, I can choose to be so intently focused in on the problem that I have and how are we going to make it and what's going to happen and how are we going to get through this and how are we going to... That I forget that God knows the plans that he has for me that are for good and not for evil, for future and hope. I can forget that God said to us in those next two verses that when we seek him with all of our heart, we'll find him. He's not playing hide-and-go-seek with us. He's not over in the corner trying to avoid being found by us. He is making himself available to us to be found as soon as we come looking. I've got to filter what I allow into my mind, what I allow into my heart. I've got to filter and try to remove those things and keep out those things that are not strengthening things for me, that don't build me up, that don't give me that peace that comes from God. I've got to filter those things. And I've got to focus. Focus my mind, focus my heart on the things of God, the things that are lovely, the things that are pure. When I've got a need, I need to specifically petition, request God as I approach him in an attitude of thanksgiving. I've got to filter and I've got to focus. And I think when I do that, I tend to worry less. I tend to have a little less unease, a little less nervousness. Because I'm not bringing in all these things that feed my nervousness. Focusing my attention on a God that can meet the needs that I do have. I want you to bow your head and close your eyes just for a moment. God, today I thank you that you love us. My prayer is that nothing that's been said today would in any way be misconstrued, that you're just this God who only allows for good things to happen. I I know, just like many of the people in this room, that bad things happen. Things happen that we wish didn't happen. I know that your word tells us that it rains on the just and the unjust, that it's not because we're Christians, we're not being persecuted necessarily when bad things happen. It's just a part of the fallen world that we live in. And I know for a lot of us, the way that we deal with that is we get nervous, we get anxiety about it, we start just being fearful. And God, I pray today that you would help every person in this room with struggles with fear, struggles with anxiety. I pray, God, that you would help them to intentionally filter the things that allow, they allow into their hearts and into their minds. That you would help them to intentionally block out those things that are not edifying, building up to them and to their spirit, to their heart. You'd help them to limit the voices that they allow to speak into their life. I pray for all of us, God, that we would filter all those things that we take in. And God, I pray for all of us that we would focus our attention on you focus our attention on the things that are lovely and pure and wholesome, the things that reflect you and your nature towards us. Help us to zoom out, God, not to be so caught up in every single minute little detail of every single situation, the things that we don't know. Help us to focus on what we know, that you promised us that you would never leave us and never forsake us. And that every single day of our lives, when we walk through these circumstances that we are living in, that you are walking with us. 
give us the strength to know that, the strength to live in that, and the peace to believe it. In Jesus' name we pray.